At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss all of our children uh, to Children's Church. Kindergarten through third uh, through fifth grade uh, can go to Children's Church with Miss Kimberly and Mr. Mario. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 17. Uh, we continue to walk through the book of Matthew, and as we do, we get to uh, everyone's favorite Mother's Day passage, talking about taxes. That just fits, right? Matthew, chapter 17, we're going to be talking this morning, we're going to be preaching out of uh, Matthew, chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Upon his saying, from strangers, Jesus said to him, Consequently, the sons are exempt. Lest we give offense, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Let's pray. God, as we see this passage, may we see the blessing of obedience, not the burden and obligation. May our desire here this morning be to glorify the Lord Jesus with our lives. Lord, may you speak to us and show us your providence and your redemption in this passage. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, it's my prayer this morning that as you leave today, that as you go home and as you, as you spend time with your moms and uh, you barbecue or you do whatever, uh, that you will remember that obedience is a blessing and not a burden. That, that doing what we ought to do, that being right in the sight of both God and men is a blessing from God, not a burden. I pray that you will be blessed in obedience, not burdened with the obligation of obedience. And so, let's look at the context of this passage. Now, it's interesting for us to note that this is not a Roman tax. This is not Jesus is confronted with the obligation and the the oppression of the Roman Empire because Caesar was taxing them way too much, uh, like like many of us would would equate the the governmental tax that we are under today. Uh, We come to uh, April 15th, and we are, it's taxes, and we've got to pay our taxes, and many of us just file for an exemption so we can put off the inevitable. Uh, We understand from from a very early age that there's only a handful of things that are inevitable in life. One of those is death. The other is taxes, right? No matter what you do, you cannot get out of taxes. Well, this was not a governmental tax. This was not a tax issued by the Roman government. This was rather a tax specifically for the Jewish people. This was a temple tax. In fact, the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, requires every man... Every man, so see, 
there are times whenever it's a blessing to be a woman. Every man over the age of 20 had to pay this tax. Women were exempt from the tax. Children were exempt from the tax. But if you were a man and you were over the age of 20, you were obligated, you were required by Jewish law to pay this tax. And this tax was two drachma, which is, which is in, a Roman wor- in a Roman world about the equivalence of a denarii, which is one day's wage. So you would go to work, you would work all day and make just enough money to pay the required tax. Sounds like today, doesn't it? You go to work, you work all day, and you get home and you look at your paycheck and say, who is Fike and why are they taking all my money? This was the context of, of this passage here. And so Jesus has, uh, he's just had this, this moment of transfiguration for his disciples. He's been transfigured. The glory of God has shown around them. He comes down from the mountain. They cure the, the, the child with epilepsy. God sees this, uh, the disciples see this miraculous work. They go back to Jesus' home base in Galilee in Capernaum. And as soon as they enter, they're confronted with the requirement, with the burden of this text. And it's interesting, they come up and they ask Jesus' disciples, are you going to pay this tax? Notice they didn't ask Jesus. They had already had this confrontation with Jesus in the past that every time we ask Jesus about the law, he, he, he says stuff, asks us questions, and completely confounds us and completely confuses us, and we end up, we end up looking like fools. So we're going to stay away from asking Jesus questions, and we're going to ask his disciples questions because clearly they're not as quick and they're not as, they're not as uh, in into it uh, with the law as Jesus is. And so they asked Peter, they asked Jesus' disciples, hey, isn't your master, isn't your leader, isn't Jesus going to pay the required temple tax? And notice Peter's response. Notice Peter's response. Peter said, "Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, we're going to pay it. And then he goes and asks Jesus, hey, what's the deal with this tax? You know, you can almost see the, the deer in the headlight look. You can almost see it there in the text that, that they come to Jesus and they say, hey, or they come to Peter and they say, hey, you owe us money. And Peter says, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. And then he runs to Jesus. And so Jesus then asks Peter, why do we have to pay this tax? Jesus gives Peter this illustration. Look at the text. Matthew chapter, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 25. He said, yes, and when he came to his house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect the customs or poll tax? From their sons or from their strangers? Or from strangers? And then Peter says, from strangers. Jesus then says, consequently, we being Sons of God are exempt from this tax because this was a temple tax paid to whom? Paid to the leader of the the, the high priest, the leaders of Judaism, the religious leaders for the purpose of taking care of the temple. The temple signified the presence of God, right? So essentially, this is a tax for God. And so Jesus is saying, if the sons of the king are exempt from paying the poll tax in the, in the land, then we, being the sons of God, are exempt from paying this temple tax to, to God. Do, do you understand Jesus' logic here? Jesus is saying, 
My father is the king. And since I am my father's son, I do not have to pay this tax. I don't have to pay rent in my father's house. As much as it would be uh, behoove us, as much as we would like to, it's not customary to charge our children rent until they're of a certain age. And then by the time you're like, get out of the house, if you don't get out of my house, I'm going to charge you rent. And they're 38 years old, still living in your, in your, in your bed, guest bedroom. And you say, look, if you don't get a job and get out of my house, I'm going to charge you rent. But when they're 7, 8, 10, 12, 15, 18, we don't charge our children rent as much as we would like to. Why? Because they're our kids. And so here, Jesus is saying, I am my father's son. And you, being my disciples, are my father's son. Go to Galatians chapter 4. I want us to see the relationship that Paul talks about us having with the father. That we are no longer we are no longer slaves, but we are, by the grace of God, as, as we have been redeemed by God, we are heirs to the throne. And so we are sons and daughters of the king. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And this is Jesus's, this is Jesus's reasoning for himself and the disciples being exempt from this text, Galatians chapter 4, 4, 5, and 6. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, of, on, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, because the faith that we have in what Christ has done, we are no longer slaves, but we are sons of God. And so because we are sons of God, we are not obligated to the law. Hear what I said. Because we are adopted as sons, we are no longer obligated to the law. My children are my children, not because they obey me, but because they're my children. Even in their disobedience, they're my children. Even in their rebellion, they're my children. We are heirs to the throne because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. And because we are adopted into the family of God, we are no longer under the, the, the obligation of the law. But we are adopted as sons. Now, what does this mean? Principally, what this means is we are no longer bound to the law. In the Old Testament, giving, giving was an obligation. In the Old Testament, if you were a Jew, the tithe was a tax. And so whenever you were born, whenever you were born into the faith of Judaism, 
every, and, and you became an adult and you started making a wage, then your wage, your, your income was taxed by the Jewish authorities, by the priest. And 10%, 10% of your income was taken off the top and it was given to the, to the high priest and it was given uh, to the Levites for, the, for the, the, the ministry of Judaism. That was a tax. It was obligated. You didn't have a choice. You didn't say, you know what? We have to put a new transmission in the car this week, and so we're not going to be able to pay the tithe. We're, we're, it's just not, there's no money there. You didn't have that option. In the Old Testament, a tithe was a tax, and this, this temple tax was on top of your tithe, and it was obligated, it was mandated by all of those who were Jewish. In the New Testament, giving is completely different. Go with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to see Paul's commendation of the church at Corinth. Now, keep in mind, this is a church that Paul's already written by the time he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. He's already written, he's already written three letters to them telling them that you're a bunch of rotten Low down, no good, liars, thieves, adulterers, that you guys got problems. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul says this. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in a wealth of their liberality. All right, let me, let me paraphrase that for you. He says, let me tell you how awesome these other churches in Macedonia were. Macedonia was a region, uh, was a region in what is, what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. And so uh, in Macedonia, he says that, that there was a great ordeal of affliction and that their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. So he says this, they were in hard times. They were losing their jobs. Their air conditions were breaking. Their cars were breaking down. They they didn't have money to pay their bills. Yet, the overflow of the joy of the Lord that was within them demonstrated itself in great generosity. They gave not out of compulsion, but they gave because they loved the Lord. But their overflow, their, their, their joy overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Look at verse 4. Being with, uh, being, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but first they gave of themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we visited this church in Macedonia. They were broke, they were poor, and they begged us for the opportunity to to take up an offering. That's like a Baptist church, right? Oh, preacher, will you please pass the plate again? You, you, You can see that, right? That's what the text says. It says, we went to this church in Macedonia. They were broke. They were going through tremendous hardships, and they begged us for the opportunity to give. They begged us for the opportunity to give. Now, contrast that with the Old Testament. The Old Testament, why did they give? They gave because it was a tax. They were obligated to. The New Testament, giving is 
always, always voluntary. And we are called in the New Testament not to give, not to give a set amount, but we are called to give sacrificially. And for many of us, for many of us, 10% of our income is sacrificial. It hurts to write out that check. For some of us, 10% is not sacrificial. For some of us, 2% is sacrificial. For some of us, 20% would not be sacrificial. The principle in the New Testament is that we are to give out of an overflow of joy and love and compassion and an abundance which the Lord has blessed us with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, the scripture tells us that God loves a cheerful giver, not an obligated giver, that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I want us to go back to the text. I want us to go back to the text, and I want us to see Jesus' principle as he addresses the disciples. For Jesus, the issue is not obligation. Look at what he says in verse 27. He says, but let, but we don't want to give them an opportunity to be offended. Look at what he says in verse 27. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea, throw your hook in the sea, pull out a fish and whatever in its mouth, pay the tax. And we'll get to that in just a second. Jesus tells Peter, we're not obligated to pay this tax. I'm the son of the king. Your son's adopted heirs of the king. You are not obligated to pay this tax. For Jesus, the issue was not obligation. The issue was the gospel, and we're going to get to that in just a second. So I want us to look at three very, three very simple principles uh, here in this text. First of all, the world, the religious leaders, expected obedience. They expected obedience. Do the people in your life, do your coworkers, do your family members who don't know Christ, is there an expectation placed upon you because you call yourself a Christian, because you carry a Bible to work, because they know that, that you go to church? Is there an expectation upon you that, that may be unrealistic or unfair? Do they expect you to be perfect? What's interesting is I believe that in the world that we live in, that there is an unrealistic expectation not only by the world, but by ourselves. I think we expect ourselves. We expect ourselves to be able to do everything that is written in here. And if we can't, and if we don't, then we find ourselves beating ourselves up saying, saying well, I must not really be a Christian if I, if I slip up and say a curse word or if I, if I get caught up in the moment and I do X, Y, or Z, then, then, then certainly I'm not a Christian because I have an expectation that I've got to be perfect. And I believe that we have unrealistic expectations about ourselves and the world has unrealistic realistic expectations about obedience. The world expected obedience. I want us to understand this. The law and holding to and keeping the law is both crippling and it's impossible. It is crippling and it's impossible. <clears throat> Whenever I had kids, my wife and I have two very different parenting styles. My wife wants to cover the entire house in foam rubber and, and 
and never allow our children to ever do anything that would ever bring harm to themselves or, or, or that, that, that they would be kept in this little bubble and they'd be protected from anything that, that would possibly hurt them in any way, shape, or form. And I am the complete antithesis. I'm like, hey, here's a penny. Go stick it in that light socket so you learn, so you learn, hey, you don't want to do that again. That hurt, didn't it? Yo, yo, hey, that pot over there is hot. You don't believe me, go touch it. You'll figure out pretty quick, that's hot. You won't do that again. We, we, we have very, very distinctly different parenting styles, and, and coming together on, on how to parent our children is, is very different, is very different. In fact, I, I have a picture. Uh, one year we were at uh, the, the other one, Chris. One year we were at the beach. One year we were at the beach, <clears throat> and we had this great idea that we'd buy this, this boat, and, and, and we'd put Daniel in this boat, and we'd take him out on the waves. And, and as the wave comes, I'd push him, and he'd be able to ride the waves. And in theory, it's fantastic. He'd had this great time, and, and he would understand that, that, that oh, the, the, the sea and the ocean, it's all wonderful. And, and well, well, we did that, and, you know, I'm taking him out there in the, in the waves, and and this wave comes, and it hits the nose of that boat, and that boat goes completely upside down. And you notice Daniel's not wearing a life jacket. His, oh, oh, my, my wife, my wife was insistent that, that he wear a life jacket. Well, the boat flipped. I said, I'm going to be right there. He'll be fine. And so the boat flipped over. Daniel goes to the bottom of the, da- Daniel goes to the, bottom of the ocean, and, and for, about, for about a second and a half, uh, we, I'm, I'm looking for Daniel. I find him. I grab him. I jerk him up. He's fine. He's fine. Well, the next time we went out in the boat, we put his life jacket on. <clears throat> but, but we understand that as children, they're going to fail. Put up the next picture, Chris. We buy these little, isn't he cute? We buy these life jackets, and we put them on our children whenever we send them to the beach or whenever we send them to the, to the pool. Uh, I, I, I see kids now, they're, they're, they're walking to the pool. They look like Michelin men. You know, they, they, they can't even, they, they've got floaties all up and down each arm and, and, and foam all around them, and, and there's no way that they're going to sink. In fact, in fact you could probably float uh, an, an entire beach of people on the, amount of, on the amount of personal flotation devices that we put on our children. But, but we, why do we put life jackets on our kids? Because we know that, that they see water, and what are they going to do? They're heading for it. They know that I'm getting in that water. And what do we as parents know? What do we expect from them? Failure. We know that at two years old, when he jumps in the pool, he's going to sink like a stone. We expect failure. We expect our children to not know how to swim. Whenever we're teaching our children how to ride a bike, we expect them to fall. We expect failure. Guys, I want you to understand something about the God of grace. He expects failure from you more than you expect it of yourself. God is a God of grace. He has given us his law. He has has revealed to us that which we should do. But he knows that we will fail. 
Romans chapter 8 tells us that the hostile mind, the mindset on the flesh, is hostile to the law of God. And it's not able to obey the law of God. God, he puts life jackets on us. He puts knee pads on us because he knows we're going to fail. And when we fail, the scripture says us that if we confess our sin, that, we, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of any and all unrighteousness. The scripture tells us that God is a God that is abundant, that is abounding in loving kindness and in mercy. That, that, that judgment is his strange work. God expects failure from us. Now, this doesn't mean that, that, that we should go out, this, this, this isn't a, a, that we should sin, that grace may abound. Paul addressed that in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin and let grace abound? May it never be. How shall you who have died to sin continue to live any longer in it? But understand that we are not saddled with the burden of being perfect. We have been given grace. And God expects us to fail because he knows us. He knows our heart. While the expectation, go back to the text in Matthew chapter 17, while the expectation of the world was that they keep every letter of the law, we are not bound by the expectation of the law. Our deeds and our righteousness cannot earn us the favor of God. While the world expected obedience, obedience was expected by the world. The second principle I want us to see is obedience was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. The death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus fulfilled the law so that we were no longer burdened by the responsibility of keeping the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, make sure you understand, I did not come to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me. God's requirement for righteousness and perfection did not change. With the New Testament, God didn't say, look, I know I was, I was, I was really hard on you guys in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's okay, don't worry about it. That's not the truth of Scripture. God's requirement for the law and perfection didn't change. The only thing that changed is God said, I know you can't fulfill it, so I'm going to come down on earth and I'm going to become a man and I'm going to do it for you. Jesus said that I did not come to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me. Jesus is the righteous fulfillment of the law. And so while the world expected obedience, Jesus fulfilled obedience. Obedience was expected by the world and was completely fulfilled by Jesus. There was no longer a need for a temple tax. With the coming of Christ, Jesus made the temple obsolete. The scripture tells us that whenever Jesus was crucified, that as he hung upon the cross and as he cried out, it is finished, it is paid in full. The scripture tells us that the veil in the temple, that which separated the presence of God from the people of God, that that veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that there was no longer a need for an earthly mediator. There was no longer a need for somebody to stand and, and make, make intercession for the people because Jesus was, 
was that intercessor. Jesus was that righteous requirement, that righteous fulfillment of the law. Obedience was expected by the world. Obedience was fulfilled in Christ. And I want us to understand this last principle, that obedience is empowered by God. Go back to the text. And I don't want us to miss this because this is huge. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, look, you don't have to pay the tax. It's not obligated, so don't worry about it. Go do whatever you want to do. Jesus said, you don't have to pay the tax because I've paid it for you and I am going to empower you and enable you to live obedient to the law. Notice the text. He tells Peter, you're not required to pay the tax because you're sons of the king. I am the king. My father is the king. You are heirs to the throne. You don't have to pay the tax. I've already fulfilled the righteous requirement. The temple is obsolete, but I'm going to empower you and enable you to be obedient. Look at the text in verse 27. But lest we give them offense, go to the sea, throw a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Once to understand the providence and the sovereignty of God in this miracle. In the Sea of Galilee, there's all kinds of different fish. In fact, in the providence and the sovereignty of God, in the creation of the universe, whenever God created the world, he created a fish to live in the Sea of Galilee that upon its spawn when it would lay its eggs and those eggs would be fertilized and those eggs would hatch, the fry, that's the little fish that, that, that swim after the eggs hatch, the fry would find themselves sheltering in the mouth of the mother of this particular species of fish to protect themselves from predators. And so as the fish in the Sea of Galilee would grow, and they would have more babies, these young fish would seek shelter in the mouth of their mother as they were very, very small. Well, just like all species, there comes a point in time whenever the female is no longer able to reproduce. They become barren. And this particular fish, because it had spent its entire life having the young fry in its mouth, to replace the fry that are no longer in its mouth, will often pick up small stones, pebbles, coins, pieces of glass, and carry it in its mouth to have something in its mouth because it it was customary for its entire life to have something in its mouth. And so I want us to understand the sovereignty and the providence of God that before the foundation of the world, God was aware, and not only was aware, but ordained that there would be this moment here in Matthew chapter 17. And so he, by his grace and by his mercy, created a fish that would put its little ones in its mouth. And then whenever the mother would become barren, it would pick up stones and rocks and pebbles and and coins. And then not only that, but God would ordain that someone would drop a coin in the Sea of Galilee. And then God would ordain that that fish would pick up that coin 
And then God would, by his ordination and by his providential hand, would ordain that that fish would, that, that had picked up that coin of that denomination would be swimming by the sea whenever Peter would throw a hook out. And that by the providence and the sovereignty of God, that that fish with the hook in its, with the coin in its mouth would bite the very hook that Peter had thrown in and that Peter would pull that fish out and in that fish's mouth there would be a coin that was not worth two drachma but was worth four drachma to pay for not only Jesus' temple tax but Peter's temple tax as well. God desires obedience for us, church. But in the power and the providence of God, he enables us to be obedient. He didn't tell Peter, go pay the tax, figure it out. He told Peter, pay the tax, but I'm going to give you the money to pay for it. He told Peter, be obedient, but I'm going to give you the ability. I am going to, through the Holy Spirit, I am going to empower you to obedience. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Look at what he says. So that we don't give offense by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, we are able to be obedient. Why? so that we don't give offense. As we close, I want us to look very, very quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Legalism, legalism cripples Christianity. Legalism is a bondage that the Pharisees lived under. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, but take care lest the freedom, the liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Paul says here in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's, he's talking very specifically about, about food that is sacrificed to idols. And he says the law is very clear that you're not supposed to eat anything that's sacrificed to other gods. But newsflash, church, there is no other god. He says to the church in Corinth, he says, we're not supposed to eat meat sacrificed to idols. We're not supposed to eat meat sacrificed to foreign gods. There are no other gods. There is one God, and his name is Jesus, and so you can eat whatever you want to eat, and it doesn't matter. But don't let your freedom cause someone else to stumble. We are not bound by the law but we are empowered and enabled to be obedient by the grace of God. He says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. He says, For though I am free of all men, I made myself a slave to all that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as the one under the law, not being myself under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who were without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 
He got that principle from Jesus. Jesus says, we don't have to pay the tax, but pay the tax so that you don't have, so that they don't have an issue which prevents them from hearing the message of the gospel. Church, there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with alcohol, cigarettes. There's nothing inherently wrong with anything in this world. The problem is, so we have sin within our hearts. The issue is not alcohol. The issue is not addiction. The issue is sin. There are some of us that are addicted to fried chicken. And those very ones who are addicted to fried chicken and weigh 700 pounds are the ones that are fussing at somebody else because they're smoking cigarettes. Let us remove the plank out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly to remove the speck out of our brother's eye. Whenever we're guilty of gluttony and we're guilty of gossip, how dare we condemn someone else because they have an addiction to tobacco? The law is crippling. Jesus said this. We're not under the law. You're not obligated to obey the law, but I'm going to empower you to obey the law so that you can be and share the love of Jesus. There are some of you here this morning who've been burdened with trying to be perfect. And I want to encourage you here today, church, Jesus doesn't want you to be perfect. He wants you to be his. He doesn't want you to try and do everything right. He wants you to surrender your life to him. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if God is speaking to your heart this morning and you are sick and tired of trying to be perfect, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Maybe there are those of you out there who've been trying to obey the law, but you understand that you can't and you desire for God to empower you to be obedient. This invitation is for you. Maybe your life is falling apart and you need the sovereignty and the providence of God to show up in your life in the same way that he showed up on the Sea of Galilee. Pray with me, please. God, may we see the righteous requirement of the law not as a burden, but as a blessing. That you have called us to be obedient and then given us the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be obedient. Lord, there are some here this morning who've been trying to keep every letter of the law and they find themselves frustrated and defeated and a failure. May they be encouraged that God expected failure from them and because he expected failure, he sent Jesus to succeed on their behalf. If that's you this morning, if you're tired of trying to be good enough, let me invite you to come. 
Jesus doesn't want you to be perfect. He wants you to be his. Surrender your life to Jesus today. There's some of us who need to lay aside the chains of legalism. We need to embrace the freedom that is in Christ. For the sake of the gospel, we need to lay aside our legalism. God, this morning, may this invitation be a time where you speak to your people. And your Holy Spirit moves in this place. In Jesus' name we pray.